0: If you have your Bibles with you, as I will do here in just a second, open them to the book of Galatians, chapter 5. Let's face it in life, no one likes to get duped. We don't like to get duped financially. We don't like to think that we've bought into something that will ruin us. We think of the poor people from the last decade who invested so much of their life savings in something like Enron, only to watch it get flushed away. We don't like being duped by fake news, whatever that might be. We don't like getting duped by politicians who support some sort of variety of fake news or who dupe us for our vote. We don't like being duped by those who we were supposed to trust. In these situations, frankly, it has made all the more difficult and painful for people who do get duped for afterwards when they look back and they say, Oh, how foolish was I? Why did I get duped by that? It's one thing to lose your shirt for a good reason, for a noble task, to start a business that you think will work and and falls apart. It's another thing to have that shirt taken away from you simply because you were foolish. The Galatians were very, very close to getting duped. They were very close to being led down a path that would lead them away from Christ. Clearly, Paul was very, very concerned about that here. But he wasn't just worried about them losing their life savings or or losing their street cred or their reputation. He was worried about them losing their eternal inheritance. Listen, it's important for us to realize that these sort of problems of being duped and being led astray are not ancient problems. These were not first century problems. It's not as though these problems affected the early Christians, but we've worked our way out of that now. These are problems of sin. And because there are problems of sin, because there are always people who will stand against the gospel of God, these are problems for us today. They are real and lasting problems. And as we probably are learning and will continue to learn, these problems are exacerbated by our modern lives. They are made all the worse because we can now be led astray, not by our next door neighbor, but by a fool who lives in Ethiopia who claims to be a king. He is not a king. Don't give him money. Okay? If he were a king, he'd have money. But nevertheless, these are our problems as well. We would do well to adhere and listen closely to Paul's words in Acts 20, verse 29, as he is leaving the Ephesian elders, and he he tells them, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert." He says, not only will wolves come in dressed as sheep to devour the real sheep, but they will be among you. He's looking out at people that he himself has has discipled. And he says, there are some here today who will act like this. So be alert. These people are out to fill their bellies with the life of the people in Ephesus, with the life of people at Crossway. They are out to fill their bellies with your goodness and to convince you all the while that it's good for you that they do so. Paul has already talked this way to the Galatians. We, we read in the last chapter in verse 17 of 417, it says, They, these agitators, make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that, they may, that you may make much of them. They, they wanted to exclude you not because they wanted what was best for you, but because they wanted you to want them. They will send you away simply so that you will want to come back to them. They will feed off of you and tell you that it's good. These people are clearly not just artifacts of the ancient world, but they are products of sin. The question that comes to us is then how can we avoid people like this? How can we avoid men like this? How can we avoid them in the church and how can we avoid them in the world? How can we avoid these influences that might pull us astray? Paul, now sort of reflecting on the situation of the Galatians and looking back over what he has said and and thinking about where he wants the Galatians to be, is going to talk about one major idea in Galatians 5, 7 through 12, and that is persuasion. Persuasion. How are you persuaded in life? What persuades you to act and to think and to want and to desire the things that you do, to love what you love? What is it that persuades you to act in those ways? What pushes you in certain directions and causes you and cautions you, excuse me, against others? Let us read then, Paul's instructions to the Galatians from chapter five, verse seven through 12. would emasculate themselves. This is the word of our God. And while this is the word of our God, I will... Having read from the ESV, which many of you have, I will now read the same passage from the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, because I think that overall its translation makes much more sense of this passage. I said that the passage is primarily about being persuaded, and we find that word one time in the ESV, but the word actually occurs three times. The same form of the word, the same sort of cognate occurs three times, and the Holman brings it out much better. The Holman reads this way, You were running well. Who prevented you from being persuaded regarding the truth? This persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough. I myself am persuaded in the Lord that you will accept no other view. He talks about persuasion. You were not persuaded in the truth. They were persuading you otherwise, but I am persuaded this way. He's talking about persuasion. So how should we be persuaded? What should we be persuaded by. First I would tell you don't be persuaded by the world. And don't be persuaded by the world. Paul notes at the very beginning of our passage, that they were running well. This is a type of metaphor that is found all over Scripture, this idea of a race or athletic events. So whenever I use athletic imagery and I talk about football for illustrations, know that I'm doing so biblically. So we use athletic illustrations all the time. And part of these athletic illustrations come in various forms. And one of the most notable form is that of a race, that you are in a race. There is a Christian race going on. Hebrews 12 is one of the most famous passages for this. So in Hebrews 11, we have all of this great cloud of witness being drawn up from from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Moses to David to Solomon. All of these people are being called up in the lives that they lived of faith and the witness that they provide. Hebrews then says this in chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, tear aside anything that would hinder us, lay down weights, make sure that we are focused. And what we are focused on is the man who is at the end of our track, the end of our race, Jesus Christ sitting himself at the right hand of the throne of God. Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, a perishable prize, but we, an imperishable prize. So I don't run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. He says, you are to run, Christian. You are to run that race with every ounce of energy you have so that you could be the one who is victorious in the end. He says, the Galatians, the Galatians were doing this. They were running how they should have run. But then he says, who hindered you? The, the actual language that's used there is clever and it's coy. Given that Paul is speaking of circumcision, literally, it should be something like, who cut you off? Okay? There's no doubt that that's a play on words, but it also is something that happens in running. It's something that happens when we drive down the road. You're driving down a country road here in Michigan, and a lovely old woman pulls out and does 30 in front of you, right? You have been cut off, and you graciously do not honk, right? So you let it go, let it go. So the reason why you do that is because you're gracious, but you know that she's cut you off. She's hindered your progress in the faith. You have to break for that. That's exactly what's going on here. You were running well, but someone has cut in front of you. They've tripped you up, and you've fallen. you stumbled. The question is, will they be able to find their footing, and finish the race. He says that they have been cut off. This cutting off leads to a question for Paul. He says, Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Who was it that did this? Who who actually stops you from doing this? And he knows that it's the agitators, but who was it? And then he answers his question. It doesn't seem like it, but he answers his question. Who is it that tripped you up? His answer is simply this, it was not God. This persuasion, whoever persuaded you to act differently, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. Here we go all the way back to the beginning of the letter in chapter 1 verse 6 when he says I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you. God himself was the one who called the Galatians. It might have been through the preaching of Paul, but they were drawn only because the spirit of God worked in them to draw them to him. It was the work of God himself that drew them. He might have worked through the preaching of Paul. In other places, it might be the preaching of Peter or the preaching of Apollos. It doesn't matter who spoke the words. If the words were the gospel, then God draws his people. It was God who drew them, God who called them, God who brought them in. Christ tells us this in John 10. The Jews gathered around him and said to Jesus, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you. And you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you don't believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish but n- and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father Who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. He says, I have called them. It is because I called them that I keep them, and I keep them in my hand, and I am one with the Father, and ain't no one taking my kids out of my hands. It is God who called them. And if it is not from God, then what stands up against God here is nothing but the world. It is the sinful, fallen nature of the world. It is human thinking, human understanding, the world which has been turned upside down by sin. It is ruled by Satan. It is, it is just devastated by death. That death is pulling people away from God. It is that they have been persuaded by worldly arguments by the world itself. It takes different forms. Here we're agitators that are trying to get the Galatians to circumcise themselves, but make no doubt, any persuasion that keeps you and hinders you from running a Christian race is nothing but persuasion from the world. There are many things that can do this to you in life. There's a professor at Stanford by the name of Dr. Fogg, which sounds like some sort of evil Marvel character, but he's a real man. And he runs something called the Stanford Persuasive Technology Lab. And what that sounds like, it sounds like it should be something with computers or something with technology, but he is actually an expert expert in psychology. And what he specializes in is how to make apps, how to make machines, how to make games that continue to change people to want to come back to them time and time again. From his own website, he says that what he wants to do is make machines that are designed to change humans. There was a website called Medium that published an article about this recently, and part of that article read, persuasive technology, also called persuasive design, works by deliberately creating digital environments that users feel fulfill their basic human drives to be social or to obtain goals better than the real world alternatives. Kids, he mentions kids here, but my goodness, this applies to everyone up to the uppermost levels of age. Kids spend countless hours in social media and video game environments in pursuit of likes, friends, game points, and levels because it's stimulating, they believe that this makes them happy and successful and they find it easier than doing the difficult but developmentally important activities of childhood. In other words, his purpose in designing these apps, and that includes Facebook, Instagram, it includes every little app game you have on your phone, the whole purpose of those games is to get you coming back to them. The whole purpose of those apps is to get you coming back to them and it provides you what you think you need. It provides you with friends who like your post but don't actually know you. It provides you with achievement and acquiring scores that matter only in a video game world that isn't real. And it captivates people and it pulls them in. I said, I don't have anything against Facebook or video games. I, I honestly don't. I play video games. I have no problem with video games but I do have a problem with Christians being distracted from the race they're running because they're pulled in and suckered in by being persuaded that these are real friends or that these are real achievements. They are not. They are not your real friends on Facebook. People who only know you through Facebook do not know you in who you are in all of your complexity. They don't know you for your good and your bad, They don't know you for your right and your wrong. They don't know you for your bravery and your courage and your fear and your shame. They only know you the way you want to present yourself and that is hardly the way you actually are in real life. They simply like your posts when they agree with them or find them easy to digest. Video games allow you to achieve in a fake environment with no consequences, but the real world is much different. And people are continually suckered into these things, and they do so because they feel like it's giving them something when it's giving them nothing. They are persuaded to spend their time here because it makes them feel better, but it offers them nothing. Go look at teen suicide rates through social media. They are on the uptick. They are that way because they keep coming back to this thing that gives them nothing. You are being persuaded, and by the way, these things are meant and designed to persuade you this way, that the things that you're doing on there are important, that you are achieving, that you are growing, that you are living, and you are not. Such worthless distractions are ancient You don't need any internet to buy into it. C.S. Lewis wrote a short book called The Screwtape Letters. And in The Screwtape Letters, there's a demon by the name of Screwtape. And Screwtape is trying to write to his nephew, whose name is Wormwood, and he's trying to get Wormwood to work on this new Christian gentleman and to lead him away from the faith. And he tries several different devices to lead the guy away. And Warmwood continues to need more advice and need more advice, and so Screwtape continues to write to him, and one of the letters that Screwtape writes to him, he implores him to not lead the guy away by, by large sins. It's easy, then, to see why this would be helpful advice. He says, listen, Wormwood, it's tough to get people to do things that they think are wrong. It's much easier to get them to do things that they think are worthless and empty, so what you can do is, is not get him to indulge in sins that he thinks are wrong, but get him to indulge in things that have no meaning. You don't need to distract him from his devotions with a good book. You can simply distract him with a yesterday's classifieds. Get him to do things that he doesn't think are sin, but certainly don't grow him in the Lord. C.S. Lewis ends with that letter from Screwtape saying this you will say that these are very small sins and, doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy that is God. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. This next line is classic C.S. Lewis, and it's brilliant. Murder is no better than cards if cards do the trick. Listen, there are many, many people in here who are enticed into nothingness. There are a few people in here who are enticed into murder. Both are deadly to you. Because they both distract you from what you ought to be doing. They both persuade you to do things that you ought not be engaging in, and they keep you from doing the things you should be. There are many ways that you can be distracted. There are many ways that the world will will call and do all that it can to prevent you from following the Lord the way you should. We can't list all of them today, but the antidote is very clear, and that is second, to be persuaded by the Lord. Be persuaded by the Lord. Paul says, I have confidence in the Lord. I am persuaded in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. You will take no other view than mine. This is reminiscent of what he says over in Philippians 1, chapter 6. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. That he has confidence in the Lord, that the Lord will finish doing what he said. Because after all, it was the Lord who called them. It was the Lord who who beckons them to come to him and then he holds them in his hands. And as Jesus said, no one can take it out. And so Paul, who has seen the work of the Spirit on these believers, he has seen their love. He said, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. The demonstration of your love for me is like the demonstration that Christ had who loved me and gave himself for me. Your Christ-likeness in that, the working of the Spirit among you, I I know that you are the Lord's. And so he has confidence here, he has boldness. He says, I'm persuaded in the Lord that Nothing will happen amongst you except your following my advice in these matters. But this creates something of an, I don't know, an irritation. It's like a stone in the shoe. Paul has spent the better part of four chapters now telling the Galatians that they are in danger. If you do this, if you continue on the path that you are on, if if you buy into circumcision, then you will be cut off from Christ. And then he turns around and says, I'm really not all that worried. I'm pretty confident. One wonders why Paul didn't say, don't get circumcised. Dear Galatians, don't get circumcised. I am Paul. Peace out. Right? Like, if he's that confident, why didn't he write, why give us warnings? Paul gives warnings. Scriptures give warnings. And we are tempted because of those warnings to fall into two different ditches on the side of the road. On one side, people who believe that saints will always be persevered, that Jesus will call them into his hands and he will hold them and he will guard them forever, can think that those warnings are not real and therefore they are unneeded and therefore they are unheeded. We won't listen to them. Pastor Doug on Good Friday talked about people who, who misinterpret what it means to be a Christian. As long as they've walked the aisle, as long as they've given some sort of confession of faith, as long as they, at one point in time, got baptized in a Baptist church, and we will write them off into the kingdom of heaven forever, no matter how far they march in their sin. That's wrong. The warnings are there because they're real and true, but that can lead to an error on the other side, and that is, the warnings might be true, but then also, perhaps, if the warnings aren't true, the other side would be that the confidence isn't real either. And we have people who think that you can lose your salvation. Christians are out there. I I remember working for a lady who was a very good Christian. She was forever worried. She grew up in the Methodist church, and she was forever worried that one of these days her, her faith would slip from her, and she would be condemned forever. She lived in constant anxiety over those things because if she didn't maintain her faith, she would fall. But neither of those are attractive options. We know that the warnings are there because they're real and true, and we also know that once saved, you are always saved, that God will persevere you. And here's where those two things combine. Paul is convinced, Paul is convinced that they will listen to his words because he has given them the warnings. It is because he has talked to them. He has seen the work of God in their lives. He has seen the gospel take hold of them. He is confident that the warnings will do their trick, and they won't. Go against the warnings. In other words, Paul is persuaded in the Lord that they will be persuaded in the Lord. If I went into my kids' room and I said, kids, there's a tornado coming. You need to come with me downstairs. Because my kids know me, because they know I love them and I've demonstrated my love for them, after asking me if I'm joking five or six times, they would follow me into the basement. And then I would say, (laughs) ha, just joking. No, I would would only do that if it was real. And then the same thing would go if I, I told them, listen, the stove is hot. Don't touch the stove. My kids don't run up and touch the stove because they know that it's hot. They know that because I'm their father, they listen to me and they follow my voice because I'm doing what is best for them. If Jesus holds you in his hands... He is telling us that no one can pry you out of them, but he doesn't tell us how he keeps you there. One of the ways that Christ keeps you in his hand is because he gives you warnings about falling out of it. And his children listen to his warnings. The warnings are effective because they're real. But God's children are persuaded by those warnings. We listen to those warnings. We heed those warnings. And so we turn back from them. So when you flip to Hebrews 6 or you flip to Colossians 1 and you listen to how Paul speaks and how the author of Hebrews speaks about the nature of of falling away, Real Christians listen to those warnings, they heed those warnings, and they turn away from their sins so that they might not fall into the traps that are listed at the end of those warnings. That's why the warnings are there, that's why they're effective. Christ will never depart from us, He will never leave us because He will make sure that we hear what the Father says. We are persuaded by God. We are persuaded by Scripture. This is how we are to be persuaded. This is how we listen to God. How are you to be persuaded by God? You listen to Scripture. Listen, I'm up here, and I would plead with you to listen to Scripture. I am pleading with you to listen to me to tell you to listen to Scripture, which seems kind of not self-serving, but maybe a little odd. But this is what we do. We plead with one another. We persuade one another. We, We conjure up words to convince one another that you ought to listen to Scripture. I don't think that you should listen to me. Only as far as I am speaking of myself, but listen to what Scripture has to say. And if what I'm saying helps you understand Scripture, then by all means, listen to it. Listen to what Acts says in chapter 17, verses 10 through 11. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So they were in danger, and the brothers sent Paul and and Silas away. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than and those in Thessalonica they received the word with all eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so what a beautiful passage they heard the apostle paul himself preached and they said you know what we need to do we need to fact check this guy and so they went to the word continuously isn't if the Bereans in scripture are upheld for doing that you ought to do the same you are convinced and you are persuaded by God to do the things that God has called you to do so that you will lay down every weight that keeps you from running to Christ who sits at the right hand of the throne of glory, that you would not be distracted by the things on the left or the things on the right, that you wouldn't look around, that you wouldn't be dragged down by your sin and dragged down by weights that you've placed upon you, but freely running to Christ with every ounce of energy that you have. So be persuaded by God through his word And do it as it's understood throughout time, knowing that the Spirit does not just speak to you and it doesn't just speak to us, but it is spoken and his voice rings throughout the church and all of its history. Thirdly, one of the reasons we do this is because the result of worldly persuasion is God's judgment. The result of worldly persuasion is God's judgment. He says, I have confidence, I'm persuaded in the Lord that no one uh, will take any other view than that which is mine. And that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whatever he is. He will have on his shoulders the very wrath of God. This again reminds us, as Paul has already reminded us of those first verses in Galatians where he has talked about, if anyone shows up and preaches any gospel contrary to the one you've heard, let him be anathema, let him be cut off. He will be condemned forever. If anyone preaches a different gospel, and Paul says, even if I come to you, or if an angel of God were to show up and you hear anything out of his mouth that contravenes the word that has been spoken to you, he is forever cut off. He will bear the weight of God's judgment. God will not, will not play around with the souls of his children. And anyone who dares dares interfere with their walk in the Lord, who dares to draw them away and try and sack them from doing what it is that they ought to do. He reserves tremendous judgment for. Matthew 18, verses 5 and 6. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Revelation 19, 1 and 2. Jesus has talked in Matthew, saying it, it's better for you if, if you're about to lead someone away from me, if you were going to hurt their faith, it, it would be better for you just to go jump into Lake Huron and tie a huge stone around your neck and kill yourself because the judgment that's coming to you will be great and the wrath will be mighty. In Revelation 19, 1 through 2, John says, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. God will take vengeance one day on anyone who would dare step in and persuade the children of God to do anything but follow Jesus with all their heart, mind, body, and soul. So therefore, one of the things that we need to take from this is that we just need to be very careful in the persuasions that we put before people and how we are persuading people. We are careful not to lead another brother into sin, either by our own sin or by our own freedom. We'll talk about that next week that we are not to use our freedom to lead others into sin or to trample on them or even to lead ourselves into sin. We are to be careful how we teach, knowing well that those who teach in the church are held to a higher standard. There are a great many teachers who lead people astray, whether they have the best intentions or no, and they will be judged for it. One of these is the prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel is an incredibly wicked, wicked thing. It presents to people a way of getting rich because it talks about the blessings of Christ that will come to them. And like any good lie, it has just enough of a hint of truth in it to make people think that it's right. They, they talk about the blessings of God being poured out. The blessings of Christ are not found in Mercedes and in, in vacation homes in Cocoa Beach. They are found in heaven. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on the earth, but, but treasures in heaven. But there's just enough of it, just enough of a whiff of truth there that people buy into it because that's what they want. As Dr. Russ Moore said, it's not that the prosperity preachers want too much. It's they want too little. So, they talk to people and they say, listen, God wants to bless you. He wants to make you very rich. But what you need to do is you need to send me a little bit of seed money. And you send a little seed money to me. Then what we will do is, is it will be multiplied to you, right? And it will, it, will, it will flourish for you. It's seed money and it will grow into a mighty oak and then you will reap it one day. Listen, it's wicked. It oppresses the poor. It smashes them into the ground and it grinds them. All the while, these wolves are making money off of it. John Oliver is a gentleman who has a show on HBO. His show is filled with profanity, half-truths, one-sided views, and I don't suggest you watch it. But he had something on Prosperity Preachers, so I watched it. He did a good job for the first two-thirds of it. He, he, He very astutely, other than their lack of emphasis on the blaspheming of the name of Christ that comes from these ministries, noted how these people sucked dry the poor people who believed in them just absolutely bled these people dry. He showed the shamefulness of it. He showed the greed of it. He showed everything about it. It was beautiful. And right as he's ratcheting up, he's ratcheting up, he's trying to get people on his side. He's made the case. Now he's going to give us the conclusion. This is what the world ought to do to fix these prosperity preachers who preach such things that the poor are willing to give their lives so that these fat cats can go buy planes and toys and trains. And this is what he comes up with. This is what you're going to do. You're going to tax them. Because they don't, they don't pay income tax, so we should just tax them. What an insipid, stupid, fallible, worldly response. We're going to tax them. You know what that's going to make them do? That's going to make them work even harder to rub more poor people's faces in the dirt so they can make more money to pay the taxes. That's, that's no solution. That's... That's the world's justice, though. When it comes to money, you just take money from them. That's not God's solution. So what do we do? We preach against it. We proclaim against it. We warn about it. We keep our people from it. And we wait for God to judge them because his judgment will be swift and it will be ruthless. And they will pay the penalty. And they will wish that taxes were taken from them so that they could simply avoid what's coming to them. The result of worldly persuasion is God's judgment. Lastly, the result of God's persuasion is worldly judgment. Friends, do not think for a second. that simply because you are going to persuade people to do God's work that you can then run through life skipping and happy. That is not the case. Notice what Paul says here in verse 11. But I, brothers, st- if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being Persecuted In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. What he means here is, I was a Jew. And because I was a Jew and a Pharisee of the Jew, I used to tell people that circumcision is what you needed to get into Judaism, then keeping the law is what you needed to do once you're in Judaism. And I used to preach circumcision, but I don't do it anymore. Why? He says the offense of the cross would be removed. I wouldn't be persecuted for it. The Jews wouldn't come after me. You see, if, if Christianity was just... Christ is the Messiah. This guy named Jesus from Nazareth was the Messiah, and everyone should believe in him. But in the meantime, really what you need to do is keep all the Jewish laws and regulations. The Jewish people would say, that's weird. But if you keep the rules and the laws, we don't really care. There would be no persecution, is what Paul is saying. But the cross is offensive to people, and the cross is offensive precisely because it offends them. It tells them that they are not good enough. It tells them that they are all on equal footing. It tells them that they will never achieve what they need to before God and that they are all sinful before God. And because everyone is sinful, the only way that you could ever be redeemed, whether you are Jewish or Roman or Greek, is to only come through the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1, 22-23, Jews demand signs and Greeks wisdom. The cross offends both because the Jews say, we want signs that you're real. We want you to do works to show us that you're real. And the Greeks say, we want something wise. We want something powerful. We want something noble. We want something intelligent. And Paul says, I know a man who is crucified. He's God. Worship him. And the Jews say, that's stupid. You mean sinners can get in? And Greeks say, that's stupid. A cross? A cross? Paul says, no, but to both who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Don't think that simply because you're persuading people for the right thing that the world won't react against it. The world will react against it. Paul says, I I can't preach anything else because to preach something else is to remove the cross of its effect. The cross is to be stark for you. It is to remove from you all pride and arrogance. You are to be humbled at the cross because you know that your salvation can only be given to you by the blood of one who died for you. So we must offend with the gospel. Not with secondary issues. not, Not because we are going to make it seem like we've got all the answers or simply pressing people to see that we are right and arguing with them. We're not to be offensive because we're jerks. Be offensive with the gospel. The Beatitudes say that blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, blessed are those who provide mercy, blessed are those who are pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, blessed are those. And then Jesus is going to tell you what it means to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. He says, blessed are you, you, this is the first time it becomes personal, blessed are you when you are persecuted, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely, not for its own sake, but for mine, but for mine, It's not just that you're persecuted. It's that you're persecuted for Christ. You're persecuted because you preach Christ and him crucified. You're you're persecuted because you put before people the stark reality that they are sinful and they need a savior. As we come to a close this morning, there's a couple of things that need to be mentioned about the difficulty of verse 12. I wanna say first and foremost, it's not a joke. Although, part of me wants to say it's funny. But it's not a joke. Clearly, Paul is angry. And I think, given what we've said about the wrath of God, he is rightfully angry. But I think that there's a little bit more going on here than meets the eye. What he's saying is, I want the, the people who are persecuting you, I want the, the, the agitators and those who are trying to lead you away to realize what they're calling you to do. See, these people were willing to be circumcised when they were eight days old, but they have no idea what they're asking of the Galatians. Gentiles viewed circumcision like emasculation. They viewed it like castration. And so what Paul is saying is, I wish you would castrate yourselves. Just cut the whole thing off so that you would know what you're calling the Gentiles to do because not only would it be effeminizing for them, but what's more, they know the law well and they know that Deuteronomy 23.1 says in the KJV, which is helpfully euphemistic. He that is wounded in the stones or hath the privy member cut off shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. ESV is a little bit more straightforward. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter into the assembly of the Lord. That assembly is the exact same word that we use for church. They know that if they engage in what Paul requires of them here, They will suffer the same indignity that the Gentiles suffer and the same fate. They will never enter in. Listen, if you try to work with your hands anything, if you try to make good works the pattern of your life so that you might be justified before God for all mankind, you will indeed be cut off. Uh, You will be cut off from Christ You'll be cut off from all of the benefits that accrue to one who trusts only in the name of Jesus Christ and in his work. Friends, let us be persuaded this morning by the word of God. Put your hope in Christ. Follow his leadership in the word with his church and let no one ever persuade you otherwise. Let us pray. Father God, we are thankful for the word that you have given us this morning. We are thankful for Paul's clear way of presenting persuasion that we are to be persuaded in you let us drink deeply and eat well not only of communion which will come knowing that it is you that sustain us in all of life but from your word even from Jesus Christ himself let us learn from him in his word and in his work in the world let us always be persuaded by you that we may run the race in order to win it We ask that you will help us in these things. Keep us from that which would lead us away from you. For we are your children, and we are so tempted by the world. We ask that you give us grace for these things today. In Jesus' name, amen.